Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Colbert Report, Rachel Maddow, On the Media, Countdown, Counterspin, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. how he greeted Saudi King Abdullah when they met in London. The fact is, this president bowed before the Saudi king. We got this video of Barack Obama bowing to the Saudi king. Something no other uh, president has done with Saudi Arabia. Exactly. The president cannot debase himself and our country by bowing before the Saudi king. You hold his hand, kiss him on the cheek, and reorient our entire foreign policy of the last 20 years around securing his oil deposits. And as for you, King Abdullah, looking good. Keep that gas under two bucks a gallon, and you can turn the Lincoln Memorial into a camel stall. Into Nashville, Tennessee. But you wouldn't even come around to see me. And since you're heading up to Carolina, you know I'm gonna be right there behind you. Cause I always have to steal my kisses from you. I always have to steal my kisses from you. Have to steal my kisses from you. Always have to steal my kisses from you. Do you ever use the online search engine Wikipedia? You ever used it? Wikipedia, it's a it's a huge user-created database. It's an encyclopedia reference source that's online. And because it's huge, and because it's user-generated, and it evolves to more usefully deliver its information, the Wikipedia geniuses have come up with some really clever organizational ideas, such as the disambiguation page. If you go to the homepage at Wikipedia and you type into the search window the phrase Vanity Fair, for example, what pops up is a disambiguation page about Vanity Fair. It's a page that invites you to clarify whether you're looking for information on Vanity Fair the magazine or Vanity Fair the British novel or the 2004 film Vanity Fair starring Reese Witherspoon or the 1932 film Vanity Fair starring Myrna Loy or maybe the song Vanity Fair by Mr. Bungle. You probably were not looking for that. It's not their best work, but you never know. It's disambiguating the idea of which Vanity Fair you are looking for. The usefulness of a disambiguation page, the idea of getting clear on what information we've got available, is something that would be helpful right now amid this torrent of new information that we've got about torture. After all we knew during the Bush administration, after Obama rescinded the Bush-era torture policies, after the Red Cross report was leaked on what happened in the CIA prisons, after the Office of Legal Counsel released memos last week that Bush's Justice Department had used to authorize torture, after we started hearing from Bush officials who knew about the torture program but wouldn't talk about it until details were declassified, which they now are, after that tide of information we got something new that is clarifying. It is disambiguating. 
Are you looking for info on what was done to prisoners that the CIA held in its secret prisons? Well, it's the Red Cross report that authoritatively exposes that. Are you looking to find out who authorized those techniques for the CIA and how they did it? That would be those memos that were released last week. Are you looking to find out about torture of prisoners not in the CIA secret prisons, but in the unsecret prisons run by the military, places like Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and Bagram? Well, for that information, what you were waiting for was the Senate Armed Services Committee report, which has now been out less than 24 hours. Armed Services Committee means it has to do with military issues, and the military was running the prisons like the one at Guantanamo. Here's the reason that disambiguation is important here, that it's important to get clear on what information we've got that we didn't have before. We've been getting two different streams of information about what was going on in these two different kinds of facilities where prisoners were tortured, CIA and military. Two different chains of command, two different parts of the federal government, two sets of physically different facilities in which we were holding prisoners. Heck, it's even, it's even two different types of congressional oversight. It's the intelligence committees that oversee and investigate the CIA. It's the armed services committees that oversee and investigate the military. These have been two separate things, two different separate things. And what we have found, and what we can now see, thanks to all this newly declassified on the record information, is that in these two different things run by two different agencies, we were doing the same things to people when it came to interrogations. Things that we never did before. Sticking a prisoner in a cold cell, chain him to the ceiling, sleep deprivation, stress positions. We never did that stuff before. And then all of a sudden it started happening everywhere. In the CIA prisons, in the military prisons, everywhere. How does that happen? How do we end up with the same totally new techniques that Americans never would have been told to use before being used on prisoners caught up in these two totally different systems? There is a place where these two systems connect, and it's not at the bottom. It's not at the level of the bad apples. It's not at the operational level. There wasn't a National Guard corporal from Ohio inventing the menace them with dogs technique at Abu Ghraib and then calling his friend at the CIA who worked at a secret prison in Poland and telling her to try that out. That is not the level at which these systems link. These two things link not at the bottom, but at the top. They link in Washington from the newly declassified Senate Armed Services Committee report, quote, senior officials in the United States government solicited information on how to use aggressive techniques, redefine the law to create the appearance of their legality, and authorized their use against detainees. Before we ever captured a high-ranking terrorism suspect, months before those memos were written that authorized stuff like waterboarding and hanging people from the ceiling, in advance, in advance, senior officials created this program not in response to poor results from traditional interrogations. We weren't interrogating people yet. But proactively, the torture program was invented. It didn't bubble up from the grassroots, from the frontline interrogators with Washington struggling to find a way to let the interrogators do to those Al-Qaeda suspects what they knew they needed to do. The impetus here went the other direction. As Philip Zelico told us, this was a carefully constructed interrogation program. Guidance went from senior officials to the CIA side and the military side. The OLC memos, which gave the CIA guidance, the, the OLC memos were to the CIA, right? Remember, they authorized things like sleep deprivation, stress positions, waterboarding, slapping. That was the CIA. Over on the military side, from the Levin report on the military side of it, quote, techniques included such methods as 
sensory deprivation, sleep disruption, stress positions, waterboarding, and slapping. On December 2nd, 2002, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld approved many of those techniques for use in interrogations at Guantanamo. And from Guantanamo, they went to the other military prisons with the same authorization, Abu Ghraib, Bagram, etc. This was a program. This went from Washington out, not the other way around. It was designed in Washington by a few specific people who put in place everything they needed in order to make it happen, and then they said, okay, go make it happen. That's what we're learning. We now have enough pieces of information from enough different places that the ambiguity on this is vanishing. It's gonna be a wrap. President Obama recently declassified a number of legal opinions issued by the Bush administration's Office of Legal Counsel. The so-called torture memos triggered controversy. Is a president who discloses sensitive intelligence gathering techniques jeopardizing national security? Is torture fundamentally un-American? And not least, would or should Obama seek prosecution of those responsible for torture? On the issue of prosecution, Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel apparently spoke for the Obama administration on last Sunday's This Week with George Stephanopoulos. He believes that people in good faith were operating with the guidance they were provided. They shouldn't be prosecuted. what about those who devised the policy? Yeah, but those who devised the policy, he believes that they were, uh, should not be prosecuted either. In addressing CIA employees about his decision to declassify, Obama offered one logical explanation. The cow was already out of the barn. The material had already been reported by the press. I acted primarily because of the exceptional circumstances that surrounded these memos, particularly the fact that so much of the information was public, had been publicly acknowledged. The covert nature of the information had been compromised. Obama told the crowd not to be, quote, discouraged that we have to acknowledge potentially we've made some mistakes. He also made clear that he had no intention of making criminals of the CIA employees carrying out Bush administration policy. But if the CIA was off the hook, who was on it? In the Oval Office the following day, the Associated Press's Jennifer Levin said she got that Obama did not want to go after those who carried out the policies justified by the Office of legal counsel. But what about those who wrote the justifications for the policy? Perhaps the Justice Department's John Yu, author of many of the memos, or the president's two attorney generals, or even someone in the Bush White House itself. With respect to those who formulated those legal decisions, uh, I would say that that is going to be more of a decision for the attorney general within the parameters of uh, various laws, and, and I don't want to prejudge that. His response to Jennifer Lovin was not a flat no, despite what Emanuel had said on ABC. Had the chief of staff spoken out of turn, 
Or had the president reversed positions? Ever vigilant for intra-administration inconsistencies, many in the media concluded it was a flip-flop. In fact, a flip-flop in response to Bush haters in the Democratic Congress. Did Obama flip-flop on prosecuting Bush officials, asked Newsweek. In reversal, Obama opens the door to prosecuting top Bush aides, said McClatchy. Obama contradicts his aides on John Yoo prosecution, wrote the East Bay Express. And that's from the supposedly in-the-tank-for-Obama liberal media. To those on the right, the declassification of the torture memos was a chance to change the subject from Obama is taxing us into oblivion to Obama is helping the enemy. You release these memos. Yes, you're trying to let the world know here's what we did, blah, 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 blah. The, the other side of this is now they're going to know more about what it is you did. And, and they also know to what line we will go and what line we will not cross. Now, All this information that's come out has been incredibly damaging to the national security of our country. No surprise there. On Fox, the president is a patsy, and enhanced interrogation techniques are just another intelligence tool. But here's an odd little twist. Though Obama argues that such activity is dangerous to the psyche of our military, to the integrity of our principles, and to the reputation of America as a moral leader, he himself doesn't much use the T-word either. Press Secretary Robert Gibbs has noticeably backed off the word lately. You didn't hear it from Emanuel on ABC, nor Obama at the CIA. It wasn't always that way. We do not torture. Period. We don't torture. Our government does not torture. Scott Horton is a law professor at Columbia University and a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine. He says that during the 2008 campaign, when Obama and John McCain discussed torture openly, the media picked up on it, and it seemed we were finally calling torture torture. Now the president and many in the media have backtracked. What has happened in the past 90 days that would make him and his administration suddenly shy about characterizing simulated drownings, wall slamming, and five-day sleep deprivation as anything but torture? Horton explains. I've uh, put this question to a couple of staffers, both at Justice and the White House, and I get a pretty consistent response, which is two prongs. I mean, one is there's concern that this issue is overheating in the country, that it's commanding too much attention from the public, and it's getting in the way of the president's affirmative agenda. And then there's a little bit of concern about the legal consequences, because torture is a crime. It's a felony. It's possible there'll be a criminal investigation. So there's some concern about people in high positions in the government suggesting conclusions as to legal culpability. Are the media here, in not using the word torture, simply walking in the steps of the White House? Well, I think they are. I mean, you know, to me, it's one of the things that shows, in the most clear-cut way, the influence the White House can have. I mean, if they say this word is off-limits, the media, not completely, but certainly, by and large, will respect these limits that the White House sets up. And let's just take a clear-cut example of it. Looking at all these techniques, the waterboarding technique, for instance, in fact, this was in the newspapers and broadcast media in the late 1970s and early 1980s. 
1980s because the Khmer Rouge in their reign of terror in Cambodia introduced this as a tactic. It was well documented and it was broadly reported in the United States and both newspapers and broadcasters referred to it axiomatically, immediately as torture. Of course, they didn't introduce it. It was also used by the Japanese during World War II, and and they were prosecuted by the Americans for it as torture. That's right. In fact, we can trace it all the way back to the 16th century, the same technique. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the new OLC memos and we look at their description of the use of the waterboarding technique, we see that they very faithfully reproduced exactly the Khmer Rouge variant of waterboarding, the same board, the same cloth, the same poured water, the same angles, and yet you won't see American newspapers refer to this as torture. When the Khmer Rouge do it, it's torture. When the Americans do it, it's not. How do you explain this? Is it perhaps regarded as responsible not to invoke a term that is so fraught with political and legal ramifications at a time when this story is so much in progress? Yeah, we hear some editors say that. Uh, They say that the conclusion is a conclusion that can be drawn by our readers. We'll just give them the facts. But in fact, when they use the code words, the softer language, they are in a sense taking a side in the debate. They're accepting the administration's characterization. And how important do you think is the word? Well, I'd go back to George Orwell and his essay, Politics in the English Language. There's a lot in a word. When we use euphemisms, when we use politically eroded language, you know, like enhanced interrogation techniques, we avoid the debate, we avoid the issue, and we put off its resolution. If it seemed excessive that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times in one month, that Abu Zubaydah was subjected to the same technique 83 times during that same month, August 2002, tonight we have finally learned why. Our fifth story on the countdown, the Bush White House, so desperate to establish a link between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda and make its case for war in Iraq, even as it insisted the link was undeniable and indelible, that it was already preparing ways for its intelligence agencies to begin torturing suspects in order to coerce testimony to that link, even if that evidence would be false. President Obama, having left the door open to the possible prosecution of Bush administration officials who drafted and approved the torture of detainees. A new report from the Senate Armed Services Committee and its chair, Carl Levin, showing him just how high up the ladder culpability might reach. The Levin report revealing that in the first eight months of 2002, the administration's program was being developed in consultation with the highest levels of the Bush White House. The goal to produce evidence of that supposed link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. Something. Anything. 
Former U.S. Army psychiatrist Major Charles Burney telling investigators that in June 2002, interrogators at Guantanamo Bay were under enormous pressure to produce results. Quoting from the Major's testimony, while we were there a large part of the time, we were focused on trying to establish a link between al-Qaeda and Iraq, and we were not being successful in establishing a link between al-Qaeda and Iraq. The more frustrated people got in not being able to establish this link, there was more and more pressure to resort to measures that might produce more immediate results. June 2002. The Levin report revealing that military and intelligence officials have been exploring ways to break al-Qaeda and Taliban detainees many months before Justice Department lawyers issued their first memos justifying waterboarding and the other means of torture. June 2002, the same month that an FBI special agent walked out of an interrogation session of Abu Zubaydah because that agent disapproved of the techniques being used. FBI Director Mueller ultimately concluding that no FBI employees were ever to participate in CIA interrogations. On April 16, 2002, just a couple of weeks after Abu Zubaydah was captured, the report stating that a military psychologist named Dr. Bruce Jessen circulated a draft exploitation plan to senior officials at the agency. That draft exploitation plan, described by New Yorker reporter Jane Mayer, who's written about Dr. Jessen's partner James Mitchell as, quote, a blueprint for cruelly coercive interrogations based on torture methods used by Chinese communist forces during the Korean War. The very same techniques that infamously produced false confessions from American GIs during that conflict. How exactly did we get from Chairman Mao's China to W's Gitmo? The military division that the Bush administration turned to to devise its torture methods, the SERE unit. The same division that trains American soldiers to withstand any methods that might be inflicted upon them, should they ever be captured by regimes that do not abide by the Geneva Conventions. None of this, however, was revealed to top CIA cabinet or congressional officials when they were asked to approve the Bush administration's new methods of interrogation. Former CIA official telling the New York Times that the process was, quote, a perfect storm of ignorance and enthusiasm. Time now to call in Jonathan Landay, senior national security and intelligence correspondent for McClatchy News. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. My pleasure. So all this finally explains what this was about. We tortured to backfill, to get somebody to prove a link between bin Laden and Iraq that was obviously non-existent? That seems to be one of the major goals. Of course, the other was, at the time that this was going on, the intelligence community was uh, convinced that Abu Zubaydah and others may have information about the imminence of new uh, plots against the United States. Only it's curious because of uh, new material that emerged today. Between uh, April, it took from April when they first got Abu Zubaydah until August to begin using those methods. What imminent plot could he possibly provide intelligence on at that point? Uh, but yes, absolutely. There appears to be an attempt that was going on, not just to get that kind of information, but to, as you point, backfill their contention that there was an operational link between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein's regime. There's something else uh, extraordinary about this timeline, as the Levin Report presents it. If, if Abu Zubaydah was detained in March 2002, and, and now Judge Bybee did not issue his first uh, of the Justice Department memos until August 2002, we know that the FBI special agent who walked out in protest of Zubaydah's interrogation, that was in June of 2002. That's between those two times. Does that not raise another question here, whether or not some torture occurred before the first memo justifying torture was written? 
Not just that. Uh, we know from the Levin report that the first inquiry that was made to this agency that taught these, um, these methods, uh, that used these methods to teach American servicemen how to resist giving up information, received their first phone call from a senior administration official that would have been a senior lawyer in the Pentagon in December of 2001. And so the question ra is raised, why did they want to know about this that early? The entire program developed, as they said in here, in consultation with the Bush White House, which would have been then White House Counsel Alberto Gonzalez and Vice President Cheney's Counsel David Addington and the Defense Secretary Mr. Rumsfeld and the then National Security Advisor Dr. Rice and the Attorney General Mr. Ashcroft. This did not happen in a vacuum at Langley or down at Gitmo, correct? That, that absolutely appears to be the case. In fact, I keep going back to that December 2001 telephone call to these gentlemen who actually developed the program, taught it to the CIA, and then, by the way, formed their own, left the government, formed their own company, mm. and became contractors to the CIA. Uh, that phone call was in December of 2001 from a Mr. Richard Schifrin, who was the, I believe, the deputy general counsel at the Pentagon in charge of intelligence. He answered to the general counsel at the Pentagon. Pentagon, uh, a, a man by the name of Haynes, who, William Haynes, who was a member of this inner circle of lawyers uh, that included Mr. Gonzalez, that included other very senior, Mr. Addington, who worked for the vice president, what provoked them to make that inquiry as early as December 2001? It's obvious that this was coming from the very top levels of the Bush administration. Last point, the connection to the Korean War, obviously the context would be lost on America 2009, but that was infamous. That was the original brainwashing. That was the Chinese communists deliberately eliciting false confessions by American POWs who didn't know anything, weren't guilty of anything. How exact was the match? Did we use that Chinese method not just to get some kind of confession, but specifically to get false confessions? Well, certainly, the, the, the methods that were taught by these people uh, in this small government agency uh, to uh, uh, CIA interrogators and to military interrogators were based on these methods indeed. And the irony, as pointed out by the Levin Report, is that the people who developed these techniques and then taught them had no experience whatsoever in interrogation. Their job... Their job, indeed, was to teach American servicemen how to resist these methods. you know that's all you're supposed to say in enemy hands. It's all the Geneva Conventions require you to say. Name, rank, serial number. But sometimes in the Korean War, for example, American prisoners of war were subjected to interrogations that were not just designed to get information out of them, they were designed to get propaganda. They were techniques designed to elicit false confessions, to get Americans to say they had done all sorts of horrible things and now they had seen the light and they were siding with the people who were holding them prisoner. 
John McCain famously was subjected to those techniques for those purposes when he was held prisoner in Vietnam. To fight back, the U.S. military designed a program called SEER, Survival Evasion Resistance Escape, S-E-R-E. -E. American troops would be subjected under controlled conditions to the things that might be done to them by a foreign enemy to get false confessions to use for propaganda. So those techniques, if they were captured and these things were done to them, those techniques wouldn't be a surprise. They'd have some hope of putting up some resistance. Today's declassified congressional report confirms in detail that even before we had captured any high-value al-Qaeda suspects after 9-11, geniuses at the upper echelons of the Bush administration decided that they would use SEER techniques to develop a new American interrogation program. From the report, quote, senior officials approved the use of interrogation techniques that were originally designed to simulate abusive tactics used by our enemies against our own soldiers and that were modeled in part on tactics used by the communist Chinese to elicit false confessions from U.S. military personnel. In other words, the Bush administration developed an interrogation program from the techniques that were used on American prisoners of war to get false confessions out of them. Hmm, what could possibly go wrong? Joining us now is Colonel Stephen Kleinman, former military interrogator. He's testified on this subject before Congress numerous times. Colonel Kleinman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a sense of what the SEER program is and what it's for? Yes, the SEER program is a very, very noble program. It, it, it's run, designed and run by some of the, the most incredible patriots you'd ever want to encounter. But it's designed for one purpose, and that is to help our personnel, our military personnel who should find themselves in, harm way, in harm's way, allow them to return with honor by preparing them, uh, introducing them to the worst possible scenarios, including what was once known the com as the communist interrogation model. Uh, something that we learned from the Chinese in the Korean War, from the Soviets back in the show trials. How did you learn that SEER school techniques were being sort of reverse engineered uh, to be used as interrogation methods by American personnel? My first exposure to that was actually during my deployment to Iraq in 2003. Uh, the organization that sent me to Iraq, uh, I, apparently there was a misconnect between us, but I thought I was going out there as an interrogator because I had uh, a lot of experience prior to that. But I was representing an organization that did this sort of training, and the idea was that we were going to introduce SEER strategies and methodologies into the repertoire of the interrogators. Why would SEER methods be used in an interrogation if they were known to have been designed to elicit false confessions? See, that, that's where the, the misunderstanding lies. At, at the very senior levels of the government, surprisingly, the understanding of the complexities of interrogation is, is rare. It really is. It, it, it's probably shaped more by the, the television show 24 than, than practitioners of the art. Hmm. There's a lot of people who don't see or don't understand the difference between a model that would train people to resist harsh interrogation and, and the purpose of that was to compel people to produce propaganda and intelligence interrogation, which is designed to elicit cooperation, therefore timely, accurate, and comprehensive intelligence. They're very similar. They appear almost similar on the surface, but there's very, very profound differences, and those two cannot be crossed. I know that defenders of the Bush administration's interrogation program, and we now have a lot of evidence that it was a program, they say that these harsh techniques, these extreme techniques, were only used in extremely controlled circumstances on a very small number of people by only very highly trained, skilled personnel, that it was an elite practice, in essence. Does that accord with what you, what you saw in Iraq and how you know these techniques were used? 
Not, not at all. First of all, it is not an elite practice. You know, enhanced interrogation technique, that term would connote a, a, an elite program, an advanced program, a one conducted by sophisticated practitioners, and, and nothing can be further from the truth. The best interrogators in this country understand how to interrogate, and that's largely a relationship-based, culturally finessed approach. It's systematic and it's patient, and that, that's what produces information. To, to use you know, serial methods or to think that one can, can uh, uh, use physicality or heavy stress to obtain useful, reliable information is just a misnomer. It's not backed up by, by uh, operational experience and it is not backed up by one shred of scientific evidence. Another Republican quoted today as having warned military personnel that war crimes will be prosecuted, war criminals will be punished, and it will be no defense to say, I was just following orders. There is an asterisk. As Chris suggested, there always is an asterisk with these people. He has remained quiet about Mr. Obama's presidency for months, but today we have videotape of former President George W. Bush calling for full open investigations of U.S. torture and calling for prosecutions of the guilty. Our fourth story tonight, yes, of course, there's a catch. But we begin with Mr. Bush talking about the war on terror and demanding prosecution of war crimes and rejecting even the rationale embraced by President Obama, that the chain of command makes it okay. War crimes will be prosecuted. War criminals will be punished. And it will be no defense to say, I was just following orders. And now the two catches. That was March 17, 2003, the eve of Mr. Bush's war in Iraq. And his tough words were directed not at U.S. troops or CIA operatives, but at Iraqis. However, when he learned that the actual Americans were capable of war crimes, he explained to an Arabic audience and across the years to Mr. Obama that in America, we do not sweep past wrongs under the rug. It's important for people to understand that in a democracy, um, uh, that there will be a full investigation. Of it. We want to know the truth. We will find the truth. We will fully investigate. The world will see the investigation, and uh, justice will be served. Mr. Bush portrayed Abu Ghraib as an aberration from his policy, rather than, as we learned in the Levin report, an iteration of it. What he stood behind, because it was not torture, were his enhanced interrogations, just as brutal, we now know, as Abu Ghraib, because those interrogations prevented new attacks. Except now we know, more than we originally suspected, that one of the prime drivers of that storyline, a former CIA officer named John Kiriakou, was full of it. In 2007, Kiriakou said Abu Zubaydah lasted probably 30, 35 seconds on the water board and from then on, quote, answered every question. But now we know that Zubaydah was in fact waterboarded 83 times. So times numbered 2 through 83 mean that his answers either kept changing or were not what the CIA wanted or they were just done for fun. We had a promise made for us and then away, both under influence. We had given 
Mr. Gingrich, what do you think about Obama wanting to cut down on nuclear weapons in the key of C? And go. Uh, I just think that's very dangerous to have a fantasy foreign policy, and it can get you in enormous trouble. What's wrong with fantasy? I like fantasy, and I'm leaving the sea. We must rebalance this department's programs in order to institutionalize and finance our capabilities. Yeah, forget about the jets. Use the super soakers, get on, get away. Michigan State heading to the national championship game. Your team responded late and your coach, how did you do it? Three words. There will continue to be job losses the remainder of this year. The question is, will they continually go down before they begin to rebound? Before they begin to rebound? Will they go down before they begin to rebound? When Mark Shields and David Brooks took the night off from their regular left-right debate on the PBS NewsHour on April 18th, their seats were filled by former Bush speechwriter Michael Gerson and supposed liberal Ruth Marcus, the Washington Post columnist who is known for, among other things, urging an already center-leaning Barack Obama to move even further to the center. Marcus did not disappoint in her NewsHour appearance, showing once again how a good TV liberal is supposed to behave. When the NewsHour's Judy Woodruff asked her if she agreed with the Obama administration's release of Bush-era interrogation memos and their reported, quote, decision not to prosecute the CIA agents who carried them out, close quote, Marcus answered, right move on both, and a very brave move on both, adding that the actions would prompt criticism of Obama from the right for making America weaker and a firestorm of criticism from the left, because the left is, quote, latching on to this hope that maybe some of the higher-ups will be prosecuted, close quote. Marcus said she understood the heat and told how after writing a column opposing prosecutions for torture, quote, I was called a torture enabler, and I don't think of myself that way, close quote. Of course, Marcus is free not to think of herself as a torture enabler, just the same way Bush administration officials in charge of enhanced interrogation techniques are free not to think of themselves as torturers. Meanwhile, back on Earth, most Americans would like to see torture allegations investigated and their views go unvoiced on public television's news hour debate of the issue. Another scene you look like this without a reason. Another promise falling through another season. memos is tearing this country apart like a man tied to a hummer by his legs with his arms tied you know actually I can't say that interrogation technique is still classified but folks I'm not upset with the people who say we need to know who did what to whom with what in where and how what upsets me is the behavior of Fox News anchor Shepard Smith 
Now, there have been warning signs that Smith was not a team player for a long time. In 2005, he criticized the Bush administration for their response to Katrina. Then, during the election, he viciously attacked Joe the Plumber for suggesting that Barack Obama didn't care about Israel. And now, yesterday, on Fox News' strategy room, Shep clearly hit the eject button. So the, the, the CIA manipulates the Justice Department into letting it do whatever it wants. And I read these memoranda. These well, memoranda. that's a matter of opinion, Judge. I mean, a lot of that's opinion, right? We've got Bob Baer saying one thing. We've got a lot of people saying another thing. We've had, we've it, had the former CIA director came out and said this stuff helped. It, it is. This stuff did we help We are America. I agree. I don't give a rat's ass if it helps. I agree. We are America. Know. We do not f***ing torture. Right. We don't do it. Shepard Smith. America, we do not swear on camera. We don't do it. Dropping the F-bomb is an affront to everything this country stands for. When you discuss our justice system condoning over 266 incidents of waterboarding, you should follow the strict federal regulations about what you can and cannot say on camera. I have an actual list of words I am allowed to say on air when I want to get spicy. I could have said, and you should have said, this is America, we do not whack my bag torture. Or, this is America, we do not turd burglar torture. Or, we do not dry hump, boobies, dildo, circle depending on context, torture. I guess... It's just not that hard to find the right replacement words. Samuel L. Jackson didn't have a problem when Snakes on a Plane was recently broadcast on your sister network, FX. Sam, show them how it's done. Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. See? That didn't diminish the impact at all. This is America. America does not freaking say f***ing on camera. Shepard Smith, you better clean up your act, buddy. You monkey fighter with a conscience. Or the FCC will hold you accountable. This isn't something you can get away with, like torture. I gotta keep it clean. I gotta keep my face clean. I gotta keep it clean. I gotta keep my face clean. President Obama made his first trip to the CIA as Commander-in-Chief.
for a private meeting with CIA employees and then a public statement of support for the agency, all in the context of the recent news that it appears that no CIA officers will be prosecuted for torture. I should say it appeared past tense that no CIA officers would be prosecuted. We actually have some big news to report on that front in just a moment. Obama's trip to Langley was meant to reassure the rank and file at the CIA about something they should have been mighty assured about before he got there. Obama said since the presidential campaign that he has no interest in prosecuting CIA officers who waterboarded or who carried out other torture techniques under the euphemism of enhanced interrogations ordered by Bush administration officials. He repeated that again last week in a written statement on the matter that his chief of staff says he actually wrote himself. And now the president said it again for the third time, just so everyone's clear. Now, during his CIA pep talk, Obama acknowledged the brewing controversy surrounding the Bush-era memos purporting to identify a legal loophole for torture, these memos that were just released. So don't be discouraged by what's happened in the last few weeks. Don't be discouraged that we have to acknowledge potentially we've made some mistakes. That's how we learn. But the fact that we are willing to acknowledge them and then move forward, that is precisely why I am proud to be President of the United States and that's why you should be proud to be members of the CIA. Acknowledge mistakes and then move forward. And by moving forward, the president has said repeatedly he means not prosecuting CIA officers who relied on these authorizations, these legal permission slips, to torture. The question then is whether or not the people who wrote the permission slips get prosecuted. This weekend, the White House seemed to rule that out as well. Here was Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. He believes that people in good faith were operating with the guidance they were provided. They shouldn't be prosecuted. But what about those who devised the but, policy? Yeah, but those who devised the policy, he believes that they were, uh, should not be prosecuted either. Those who devised the policy should not be prosecuted either. That's big news. Before those comments from Rahm Emanuel, we only knew that the administration didn't want to prosecute CIA officers, the people who'd done the actual interrogating. But those comments would seem to indicate that the administration does not want to prosecute anyone. Huh. Just in case you thought Rahm Emanuel misspoke when he said that yesterday, Press Secretary Robert Gibbs reaffirmed that stance. So I understand you're saying the people in the CIA who followed through on what they were told was legal, they should not be prosecuted. But why not the Bush administration lawyers well, again, who, in, in the eyes of a lot of your supporters on the left, twisted the law? Why are they not well, being held accountable? The president is focused on looking forward. That's And the direction that you prefer to look in is more important than laws that are binding? Not elective, actually laws that are enforced in a country that's supposedly governed by law? Sorry, I digress. Around the same time, the administration was ruling out prosecuting the people who authorized and gave dubious permission for torture, we learned the extent to which that permission was exercised. In a remarkable detail that was first noticed by blogger Marcy Wheeler at the website Firedog Lake, the just-released torture memos include, in the fine print, the notice that two prisoners, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah, were waterboarded an astonishing 266 times between them. 
Quoting from the 2005 memo, quote, the CIA used the waterboard at least 83 times during August 2002 in the interrogation of Zubaida and 183 times during March 03 in the interrogation of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. 183 times in one month. That would average out to six times a day, every day for 31 days. That revelation, of course, calls into question everything we have been told about the justification for torture in the first place. Every time you've heard that waterboarding was used sparingly, think six times a day, every day for a month. Every time you hear that it was used as a last resort, think six times a day, every day for a month. Every time you hear that torture is effective, think to yourself, they had to use it on two guys 266 times. Because what, it didn't work the first 265 times? That's how effective this is? What we thought we knew about torture, what we were told about its use, is plainly no longer true. In terms of the facts of what we know about who we tortured, when, and how, the facts are new. We have a whole new understanding of what happened and who was involved. And yet the political reality remains unchanged. No prosecutions. Up to this point, the White House justification for not wanting to prosecute CIA officers who waterboarded or otherwise tortured people was that those officers were just following the guidance they were given by the Justice Department about what was legal and what wasn't legal. Now that we see the CIA's admission that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed got waterboarded 183 times in a month, we know those officers were not following the guidance in those awful memos. Those memos prescribed specific limits on the duration and frequency of that kind of torture. So if there's going to be a political announcement about immunity from prosecution for CIA officers, it now has to be based on a different rationale. There's also an open question about whether the officials involved here will be prosecuted, those who requested the legal authorizations for these techniques, the lawyers who themselves authored the memos, or anyone who gave the actual go-ahead to use these techniques, basing their permission on the memos. Could they still be investigated and prosecuted? Despite assurances from the White House, despite those assurances from Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel and Press Secretary Robert Gibbs, the White House is not the same thing as the Justice Department. And within the Justice Department, new reporting suggests that a very different discussion is underway. This is big news. Newsweek's Michael Isakoff and Evan Thomas are reporting that Attorney General Eric Holder at the Justice Department is not at all settled on the White House's conclusions about not prosecuting Bush administration officials and maybe even CIA officers who acted outside the bounds of the torture memos. The White House says no prosecutions. The Justice Department is reportedly undecided. Quote, Attorney General Holder is seriously considering appointing an outside counsel to investigate whether CIA interrogators exceeded legal boundaries and whether Bush administration officials broke the law by giving the CIA permission to torture in the first place. Wow. So even if President Obama doesn't want to prosecute, his attorney general might?
Jake, for your next quote, we turn to columnist Peggy Noonan and her response to an explosive controversy involving some newly released Bush administration memos. Sometimes in life, you want to just keep walking. Some of life just has to be mysterious. So what controversy does Ms. Noonan think we should just walk right past? Oh, that would be the uh, interrogation and the torture stuff? Exactly, the torture memos. Last week, President Obama released these four memos. I know, you're clapping. You're clapping for torture? No, you're not. You're clapping for Jake. Last week, President Obama released four memos prepared by the Bush administration justifying the use of what many people say is torture, and thus it should be investigated. Former Bush administration officials and other conservatives say it was useful and necessary. Apparently, you can't shake hands with your enemies, but you can waterboard them. <laughs> but Peggy Noonan, bless her, sees the world through a rose-colored blindfold. And... Because of her inventive approach to grappling with complex problems, Ms. Noonan will be hosting a new show on the History Channel called Averting One's Eyes with Peggy Noonan. <laughs> <laughs> the episode on the Watergate scandal is just her watching the pandas cuddle at the National Zoo. Well, you know, I, th I think that, you know, that argument that, you know, well, they got good information, so, you know, what's the problem? It's like you... You well, hold on, you're just saying that many people have defended these techniques, yeah, harsh techniques, because, well, they work. We got valuable information. Well, that's like, okay. you know, you, you accuse a shoplifter of stealing, and he says, well, call it what you want, but look at all this great stuff I got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, on certain people, I think torture would work very well. I, mean, I stepped on one of my boy's Lego pieces in the dark the other night, and I gave up the locations of three chemical plants. CIA who carried out orders to torture terror suspects, President Obama, it has now been confirmed, will also not hold accountable the Bush administration officials who devised the torture program, handed down the orders to torture, or wrote the memos justifying it all. Our fifth story in the countdown, the United Nations expert on torture says not pursuing torture prosecutions is illegal. Didn't we learn with Watergate that the cover-up is always worse than the initial crime? The president was greeted like a rock star this afternoon by employees of the CIA at agency headquarters in Langley, Virginia. White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel stated over the weekend that, quote, this is not a time for retribution or anger, when he admitted that President Obama has no interest in going after Bush administration officials. Today, White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs confirmed that the authors of the torture memos are not being held accountable because, quote, the president is focused on looking forward. 
except looking forward by not pursuing torture prosecutions is illegal. The United Nations expert on torture, special rapporteur Manfred Nowak, explained to the Austrian newspaper The Standard that the U.S. is obligated to investigate and prosecute any American citizens who are believed to have engaged in torture. Not to do so would be a violation of international law, especially it would seem if a single terror suspect was tortured 183 times in one month. The memos revealed that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times in March 2003. That's six times a day. Abu Zubaydah waterboarded 83 times in August 2002, an average of 2.6 times a day. Senator Dianne Feinstein has written a letter to President Obama in which she asked him to hold off exonerating top Bush administration officials until the Intelligence Committee can hold hearings. Meanwhile, back at CIA headquarters, President Obama reassured agency members that they've got his full support, and he gave his first explanation for why he released the memos. I acted primarily because of the exceptional circumstances that surrounded these memos, particularly the fact that so much of the information was public, had been publicly acknowledged. The covert nature of the information had been compromised. I have fought to protect the integrity of classified information in the past, and I will do so in the future. And there is nothing more important than protecting the identities of CIA officers. So I need everybody to be clear. We will protect your identities and your security as you vigorously pursue your missions. I will be as vigorous in protecting you as you are vigorous in protecting the American people. President Obama also emphasized that he has put an end to torture as a CIA job description. I have put an end to the interrogation techniques described in those OLC memos, and I want, to, I want to be very clear and very blunt. I've done so for a simple reason, because I believe that our nation is stronger and more secure when we deploy the full measure of both our power and the power of our values, including the rule of law. The rule of law absent any repercussions for anyone who might have broken the law. Yet despite the get-out-of-jail-free card, President Obama with a desire to keep any CIA employees from feeling discouraged. So don't be discouraged by what's happened in the last few weeks. Don't be discouraged that we have to acknowledge potentially we've made some mistakes. That's how we learn. But the fact that we are willing to acknowledge them and then move forward, that is precisely why I am proud to be President of the United States, and that's why you should be proud to be members of the CIA. Time now to call in our own Howard Feynman, senior Washington correspondent for Newsweek magazine. And Howard, great to see you as always. Hey, good evening, David. Howard, if it is illegal not to pursue prosecutions, as the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Torture has made clear, doesn't President Obama now run the risk of making himself a co-conspirator? Well, uh, that doesn't seem to be a question that the White House is really in a big hurry to answer. Uh, in theory, perhaps, the problem that they've got is the one that you discussed at the beginning and I was talking to a couple of lawyers about a little earlier, David. It's pretty clear that both under the U.N. Treaty and under the United States' own law, which was uh, enacted to match that treaty, uh, if you intend to and do uh, inflict uh, severe mental distress on, on people you have in custody, that's torture. And 
Administration officials in this administration and indeed in past administrations have said that all that waterboarding was torture. So yes, based on the law and the treaty, people should be investigated and perhaps prosecuted for their actions. The administration has said it's not going to happen and that puts them in the dilemma they're in. I would say you're watching, by the way, out there at the CIA, David, uh, President Obama now facing one of the first big conflicts between rhetoric and reality of his presidency. It's been a lot of gravy until now. Now he's getting down to the hard stuff and it's beginning with the CIA. Well, the timing is even strange. I mean, Rahm Emanuel and Robert Gibbs have effectively closed the door on any officials being prosecuted. Why not leave that door open just a crack for now and say, well, we hope nobody is prosecuted, but it's important to have an investigation first and then there can be a decision. Well, perhaps unrealistically, they're hoping to short circuit the Congress and the Democrats on this. Uh, David, I don't know that it's going to work. If they leave the door open, they encourage investigations by uh, by the Congress. And as you reported earlier, uh, uh, Congresswoman uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein and others are saying, hold off, White House. Don't make any firm statements until we investigate. That's exactly what the administration does not want, because they're trying to calm the CIA. You saw the president out there doing it at Langley today. And also, Obama has a lot of fights to pick with the Republicans as it is. He doesn't want to go down this road and create yet another uh, reason for for partisan division at a time when he already has plenty. Why didn't uh, President Obama remove himself, though, from the decision, from the investigation and from the prosecution entirely, and if he was going to make this decision, essentially have it made by other officials? Well, it's very interesting. He's changed his rhetoric here a little bit. He, he announced for the first time today that, that actually a Freedom of Information Act request suit filed by the ACLU was one of the reasons why he did it. Then the White House backed up a little bit on that. Uh, the main reason he didn't kick it to somebody else or down to, say, uh, uh, Attorney General uh, Eric Holder is that that's the kind of thing that George Bush used to do. Uh, and once again, I think uh, Barack Obama is trying to pro prove that, uh, that, that he's the guy who, who really knows the details of what's going on and will take responsibility for him. It would be all too easy a parallel to make if he stayed out of this decision and let Eric Holder make it on, its own, on his own. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times in one month, according to this memo. If torture purportedly works, why would a single suspect need to be waterboarded six times a day? Well, apparently, according to Dick Cheney, it did work. Uh, but Dick Cheney's uh, out there now uh, saying that, uh, hey, wait a minute, the memos are out, but what about the other side of the story? We got all kinds of useful information out of this. I don't know whether it was on Waterboard 120 or Waterboard 181, uh, but that's, that's Dick Cheney's point, and he's going to press it. And he has asked for the CIA and the government to, to release other memos that will purport to show all the great information that we got out of this. Yeah, it's interesting. The timing is interesting. One was right before the one period of intense waterboarding was right before the beginning of the sales launch of the run up to the Iraq war. And the other intense period of waterboarding was right before the Iraq war, right around the time that the Iraq war started. I bet you there's a uh, there's a connection there. We'll find out as we as we dig into it more deeply over the coming weeks. Indeed. Howard Feynman of MSNBC Newsweek. And Howard, thanks as always. Thank you, David. You're welcome. At least one top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee has dismissed President Obama's defense of CIA officials who tortured detainees just because they were under orders to do so. Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky told the Huffington Post, quote, this notion that I was just obeying orders, I don't want to compare this to Nazi Germany, but we've come to almost ridicule the notion that when horrific acts have been committed, that people can use the excuse that, well, I was just following orders. I don't know what you're looking for. Sure.
President Obama okayed releasing the Bush torture memos? Intrepid reporters have been combing through them, gleaning key pieces of information like this from the May 10th, 2005 memo in which Bush lawyer Stephen Bradbury defends a torture technique most famously favored by the KGB, sleep deprivation. Mr. Bradbury writes, quote, we understand from our review of the literature on the physiology of sleep that even very extended sleep deprivation does not cause physical pain, let alone severe physical pain. Bradbury cites James Horn, director of the Sleep Research Center at Loughborough University and the author of a book called Why We Sleep. Quote, the longest studies of sleep deprivation in humans involved volunteers who were deprived of sleep for eight to 11 days. Surprisingly, little seemed to go wrong with the subjects physically. That is surprising. In fact, it's so surprising it even surprised Professor Horn, the guy Bradbury was quoting. Bloggers at Obsidian Wings and TPM Muckraker caught up with Professor Horn, who has now responded to the misuse of his work with adjectives like saddened and surprised and appalled. The professor points out that there is a big difference medically between an average healthy person and someone who is being tortured in other ways. Quote, as soon as you add in any other stress, any other psychological stress, then the sleep deprivation feeds on that, and the two compound each other to make things far worse. It was totally inappropriate to cite my book as being evidence that you can do this and there's not much harm. I don't understand what you're going to get out of it. You can no longer think rationally. You just become more of an automaton. These people will just be spewing nonsense anyway. It's pointless. Don't take it from me, he's the professor. Last week I had the strangest dream exactly how it seemed where there was never any mystery of who shot John F. Kennedy it was just a man with something to prove slightly bored and severely confused he steadied his rifle with his target in the center and became famous on that day in November The New York Times on April 19th ran a story reporting that the U.S. government had used water torture far more often than had previously been told. One prisoner, al-Qaeda leader Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was waterboarded 183 times in one month. In a different month, the same torture was used on Abu Zubaydah, accused of being an al-Qaeda operative, at least 83 times. The Times report contained a bit of implicit media criticism when reporter Scott Shane noted that, quote, a former CIA officer John Kirkow told ABC News and other news media organizations in 2007 that Abu Zubaydah had undergone waterboarding for only 35 seconds before agreeing to tell everything he knew, close quote. Well, that's rather a different picture. The revelation of the actual degree of Zubaydah's torture is a useful reminder that people who are willing to torture another human being are generally willing to lie about it as well. That's something that the Washington Post should have
should have kept in mind when they published an op-ed on April 21st from former George W. Bush speechwriter Mark Thiessen. His column cited CIA claims about foiling a supposed plot to blow up Library Tower in Los Angeles as proof that so-called enhanced interrogation was worth it. Quote, without enhanced interrogations, there could be a hole in the ground in Los Angeles to match the one in New York, close quote. Well, one problem with this argument, somehow missed by the Washington Post's crack team of fact-checkers, the library building plot, such as it was, was discovered in 2002, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was arrested by the United States in 2003. It's not impossible for me to cry. It's just the hardest thing I have ever done. And it's a shame, you know, but it's ingrained, you know. Boys don't cry. Boys don't cry. was to say goodbye I was scared you know and I was mad you know but boys don't cry boys don't cry we start with two major new developments concerning the Bush administration's torture program. As reported by the Washington Post, in July 2002, the Pentagon's top lawyer, William Haynes, was informed by the military's best authorities on the subject in writing that the enhanced interrogation program that was being developed in Washington was, in fact, a torture program and that torture was not an effective tool to gather reliable intelligence. The Joint Personnel Recovery Agency Agency, which oversees the SEER program, the How to Survive Torture program, from which the torture techniques were reverse engineered, they sent a memo to William Haynes, General Counsel of the Department of Defense, which bluntly called those enhanced interrogation techniques torture. The memo warned that history refuted any assumption that an interrogator could get reliable or accurate information by using torture. For reasons yet to be determined, these warnings were ignored, and the program was signed, sealed, and implemented anyway. A serious bombshell and a story ever more crowded with bombshells this week. The second major development concerns the National Archives and Vice President Cheney. The National Archives has just released details of documents requested by the former vice president, which appear to show the grounds on which Mr. Cheney intends to defend himself from investigation or even prosecution for torture. Mr. Cheney was, of course, known throughout his tenure as vice president for his secrecy, for his reluctance to speak to the media, for his proud disdain for public opinion, and for his resistance to disclosure of government information to the public. It was thus a leap very far out of character when this week he announced on Fox News Channel that he was seeking the disclosure of classified information about prisoner interrogations. And there are reports that uh, show specifically um, what we gained as a result of this activity. They have not been declassified. I formally ask that they be declassified now. I did. Uh, I haven't announced this uh, up till now. I haven't talked about it. But I know specifically of reports that I read, that I saw, that lay out what we learned through the interrogation process and what the consequences were for the country. Reporter Greg Sargent obtained from the National Archives the actual request 
filed by Dick Cheney for those documents. The documents, you've seen the request, just the actual request here. The documents he is requesting are still classified, but here's what Cheney's request tells us. Cheney is trying to get two documents. One is from July 2004, and one of them is from the following June. They're both CIA reports, and both, he helpfully notes, can be found in a file from his immediate office that is labeled detainees. Imagine being at a meeting with Dick Cheney about something, and you notice on his desk he's been flipping through his detainees file. <laughs> the first document that Dick Cheney is asking for is from July 13th, 2004. Now, we don't know for sure what it is. It's redacted, right? It's still, classi still classified. But here's a big fat hint as to what that document is. In the torture memos that were just released, why, here's a citation for something that's from that exact same date. July 13th, 2004. It's a memo called Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, preeminent source on Al-Qaeda. Now, we don't know if that is the exact same document that Cheney's requesting. Maybe he's requesting some other CIA document produced on exactly that date about exactly that subject. I would bet a poke in the gut that that is what Cheney is requesting from the National Archives. Cheney said this week that what he wants declassified are reports that show what we gained as a result of these, now we know, torturous interrogations. But now we also know that he's not asking for evidence, for documentation that was produced at the time that people were being tortured. What he's asked for are reports produced after the fact. Actually, if you look at a calendar, what he's asking for is something that was produced right after the Abu Ghraib scandal broke and shocked the nation and the world. And right after the Inspector General of the CIA produced a report on CIA interrogations that, is, that has been described by people who have seen it as sickening. What he's asking for is documentation produced by the CIA at the time it was trying to cover its proverbial butt, please excuse the phrase. What seems evident from this new development is that Cheney's, uh, this, this request from Cheney, Cheney's apparent request for the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told us a lot memo. What seems apparent is that Vice President Cheney will try to defend himself using the same defense that was used in the torture memos. The same defense that was rescinded even by the Bush administration. The same defense that has everyone trying to figure out if the lawyers who constructed that defense are going to get convicted or just disbarred. Vice President Cheney is setting up as his defense the argument that it's not torture if it worked. Using the legal concept that behavior must shock the conscience to be illegal under U.S. law, the former vice president appears to be basing his defense, like the ill-fated OLC lawyers did, on us not being shocked by torture because torture works so well, because it's so efficient. Joining us now is retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Vice President Cheney has emerged as the Bush administration's chief defender thus far on the issue of torture, as all of these recent documents have broken. He is now seeking to declassify evidence that he says will show how well it works in getting people to talk. Does that seem like a cogent defense to you? Does that make sense to you that he'd be arguing that? It does not. It seems illogical. I, Vice President Cheney is a man who frightens easily. Um, all you have to do is go back to his five deferments during the Vietnam conflict, his behavior post 9-11, 
undisclosed locations and so forth, and, and the imminent and poli the politics of fear that pervaded the first Bush administration and a lot of the second Bush administration, almost the equal of what Joseph McCarthy managed to achieve during the latter part of the Truman administration and the early part of the Eisenhower administration. He's a man who lives on fear, and he's a fearful man. And I think this, as, as you hinted, is his effort, because he's fearful right now of what might happen to him and some of his subordinates, uh, he's, he's trying to lay out some sort of defense. But the defense doesn't hold water, in my view. There's also this late-breaking news from the Washington Post that the, the SEER school experts, the people who ran the How to Survive Torture training course for our troops, this course that was reverse-engineered to come up with these techniques, they told the Pentagon in writing in 2002 that what was being devised in Washington was a torture policy and that it wouldn't produce reliable and accurate information. That memo seems to have been ignored. What's your reaction to that? I don't doubt that. Um, professional opinion from the CIA, from contractors who interrogated from the military's interrogator, from the interrogators, from the FBI interrogators. Everyone with whom I've spoken who had at least 10 years of experience or more is of that same opinion. And I can't imagine that a professional organization in the Pentagon wouldn't give the same advice. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty good advice. Interrogators will tell you that on occasion, on occasion you may get reliable information. But the general trend is you don't get reliable information. As you pointed out, you get someone trying to stop the pain. And you also compromise your ability to come back to that individual subsequently and get reliable information. So you've just ruined him as a subject for potential future in intelligence. If all the people who know these things as experts through long experience would essentially hold that view of it. And I, as far as I've heard about my, my experience asking those people that question and reading up on it comports absolutely with what you're saying. Where did the impetus come from to devise a program based on the SEER school torture techniques? I think that's an excellent question, and I, I, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but uh, the politics of fear and the fearfulness of the vice president and others seem to me to be rather astonishing. I mean, let's face it for, for just a moment. Sri Lanka, Israel, the United Kingdom, other countries have lived through terrorism that proportionately was worse than what we lived through. So as you look back on it, the overreaction of these people to what happened on 9-11, as horrible as it was, is astonishing. One of the things that is emerging as we learn more, as more information comes out, not only documentation, but people feeling that they are free to talk about what happened during the Bush administration because of what's been declassified. One of the things that's emerging is this squelching of dissent. Uh, Philip Zelico from the State Department was on this show this week, and he said that he wrote a rebuttal to the torture memos. The White House then not only disregarded the memo, but went and found every copy of it that had been distributed and made sure they were destroyed. Um, we've also now got this news about this Pentagon memo, which didn't surface. It was written in 2002, didn't surface till 2009. This squelching of dissent. Why does that seem to have been the MO? And did you experience that inside the Bush administration? I did experience that. And I'll point out another example to you. You may be aware of Alberto Moro, the very courageous Navy JAG, went to Haynes, OSD General Counsel Haynes, and uh, pointed out to him that in accumulation, even the techniques and procedures Rumsfeld had approved in his December memo, 
uh, in accumulation and over time constituted torture. And he was assured by Haynes that that would be taken to the secretary and amendments to procedures would be made. And he went away happy that he'd had some positive influence, and yet it wasn't a change. They simply buried Alberto Moro's objections and went on with things just as they had before. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this was an administration that not only didn't tolerate dissent, it worked ways in the system, in the decision-making system, that dissent could be shuttled aside so that their single opinion could be carried out in terms of execution. It's, uh, for an academic like me who studies national security decision-making since World War II, it's a unique situation. It has, it has no parallel in our history. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, remember, the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. We might actually be on our way now. That's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and Just a fun friend.